Hi, this is Pastor Andrew here at Oak Ridge Baptist Church in San Antonio, Texas. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can check us out online at www.orbcnet.com. Or better yet, come by and visit us at the corner of Wurzbach and Vance Jackson in Northwest San Antonio. Um, in Christian circles, uh, for those of you who uh, follow kind of the workings of what's happening within the Christian community, uh, you will know that... Um, that two prominent leaders in Christianity have um, left the faith. Uh, one of them uh, was the lead sinner. Lead sinner. It's <laughs> not what I meant. That's not what I meant at all. The lead singer of the Christian worship group Hillsong. Okay. The other guy um, is a guy named Josh Harris. And he was the author of a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Now, if you grew up in youth groups in the 1990s kind of time frame, I guarantee you probably read that book. If you're older than that, well, you're older than that. Um, both of these men, though, were kind of superstars. They were young men. They were super superstars in the Christian community. Uh, a lot of people looked to them for leadership. A lot of people looked to them to kind of help them understand the world. Um, and within a couple of weeks of each other, both of them have, um, have left Christianity. Now, there's some question about it, you know, exactly how much they've left, and, you know, are they leaving the faith, are they giving up the faith, but, but this has undeniably struck many people incredibly hard, right? Because it seems like, it seems like we just keep losing people. It seems like every time we turn around, somebody's falling, somebody's leaving, somebody is, is telling us that Christianity is, is not the way. And I need you to understand this. This is the result of huge amounts of pressure that are placed on Christians in positions of notoriety by the world. If you stand up in leadership for the Christian community, you have a tremendous target on your back. That's one of the reasons that I'm glad that I am the pastor of a smaller church, because the target on my back is not that big. I'm not that important. If you take me down, it's like I'm a really, really small target. There's plenty of other guys that you can go after before you go after me. But the world is incredibly hostile to Christianity. It's incredibly hostile to the gospel. And the, the story that we have this morning, we begin to see that this hostility to the gospel and to the people of God has existed since the very beginning, right? It's not like this is something new that is occurring that never occurred before. No, from the very beginning of the church, the church has been under attack, and the leadership of the church has been under attack. Right, We have been going through the book of Acts. We're on chapter 5 right now. We've seen as the church grew immensely, had this amazing time of growth. Um, we've watched as, as the church has dealt with uh, this new healing ministry that's kind of been thrust upon it. Uh, we watched last week as the church dealt with some dissension and division within. We kind of saw how church discipline works there. And now we're going to begin to see that the challenges for the church are not just internal, they're external as pressure begins to be applied. Now we read in 
chapter 5, verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they were even carried out the sick into the street and laid them on cots and mats that Peter came by. At least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were healed. Right? So as with each of the previous sections, right, we, we begin to see Acts is a little bit repetitive, at least this section of Acts is. We have a picture of what the community looks like, some amazing thing that happens, and then how that amazing thing affects the church. Right? So that's the pattern that we have, and this is the way that Luke is conveying the truth about what the early church was like. So we have this picture of the early church, and it's amazing. Something horrible has just happened, right? Ananias and Sapphira just died. And that's a huge deal. It draws a very clear line between who is in the church and who is outside of the church. And our world teaches us that if we draw hard lines, right, and if we establish ourselves and we try to defend the holiness of the church, then we're going to become increasingly out of step, Right, that we're going to become irrelevant, that people aren't going to want to be around us, and that we're going to fail as a church. But what we see here is the exact opposite. The result of drawing hard lines, the result of discipline, the result of the people standing on holiness is that the church grows. That there is a clear line drawn between those inside the church and those outside the church, those that are following the way, those that are not following the way. And the people who are not Christians grow in their respect for and the awe that they hold the church. Holiness leads to church growth. We're constantly being told by the authorities in our culture that we need to become more relevant. And by relevant, they mean we need to look like the culture around us. And yet the picture that we have from the book of Acts is the more unlike the world that we look the more relevant we become. Because, see, the world is looking for a savior. Everybody knows that they need a savior. The worst sinner out there knows that they need a savior. They just think the savior is something totally different. They think the savior is alcohol. They think the savior is sex. They think the savior is money. They think the savior is position. They think the savior is power. And when we attempt to look like them, all we succeed in doing is being a bad counterfeit of what the world already has. Because I'm going to be honest with you guys, you're not going to have money here. I'm not going to give you prestige. This is not going to be a cool place, no matter how hard we work on it. It's just not going to be that cool. It's not going to be as cool as a rock and roll concert. It's not going to be as cool as a monster truck rally. Yes, I think monster truck rallies are cool. That's right. They are. They're amazing. But we're just not going to be that cool. But if we stay separate from the world, if we stay holy, if we continue to follow Christ, we paint a completely different picture. We demonstrate the difference between who God is and who the world is. Right? And so this drastic increase in the prestige of the apostolic community as it grows and it is separated from the people around them, as this happens... Something else happens. 
the people that are in power begin to resent it. The people in power begin to become jealous. They begin to look around and say, who are these guys? What are they doing? Why are they doing this? We read, it says, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. They're like, we're done with this. We confronted you once in Solomon's portico. You didn't listen to us. So now there's about to be some consequences. You're going to go to jail because we're the ones that are in charge and we're the ones that are in power. They attempt to break the back of the Christian movement through force. Because after all, it worked with Jesus, right? They killed Jesus. So they're going to go after the apostles. But see, God was not content to allow them to have that power. And so we read, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. See, the apostles are freed by supernatural intervention. Now, I want to be careful. We got to be careful with this, right? Because God does not always or even often rescue us from the anger of the world that we live in, right? We live in a hostile place. There are Christians that actually get killed for being Christians throughout the world, okay? But in this instance, God comes down. At this early time in the church, he comes down and he rescues these people, right? And so we begin to see this image of God as the rescuer. Now, he hasn't changed. God has always been the rescuer, Right? He has always had his people speak truth to power, and he has always come and worked with them. Right? If we go back to the, to the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? they're standing in front of King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the known world at this point, and he puts this to him. He threatens to throw them into a fiery, a fiery furnace if they, forget, if they refuse to obey him. And he says this, he says, then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? That's some stout words. What God will be able to rescue you from my hand? And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego reply, if we were thrown into the blazing furnace, the God who we serve is able to save us, save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. That's 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 a pretty stout statement too. You look into the king's eyes, the guy that's got the ability to kill you, say, you can do whatever you want to me. My God can rescue me. But it doesn't stay there either. He says, but even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. This is the heart of Christian defiance. Christian defiance says, you have no power over me that my father has not given you. If that sounds familiar, that's because that's what Jesus said. That's our response. You have no power. The world has no power over us except that which God has given them. God may release us. God may not release us, but he is still in control of all that happens there. And in this instance, the apostles are freed from the prison. See, this is important. They're freed from the prison, but they're not freed from their responsibility to teach. He doesn't say, hey, the door's open. Y'all get out of here, man. Just be cool and don't, don't do nothing to get in trouble again. 
says, I am freeing you so that you can go back out there and do the job that I have assigned to you, which is to be my witnesses. See, God is fully in control, but his power is not used to spare us from pain. His power is used to spread his gospel. So the high priests and the Sadducees return to the prison and they discover that they are not nearly as powerful as they thought that they were. They're not nearly as powerful as they believe themselves to be. They, they are not actually the ones in control here. And that can be a very, very scary thought. Right? We read that when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate and the people of Israel, and they sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they didn't find them. Can you imagine what that must have been like? You finally rounded these guys up. You finally got them under lock and key, right? If you're the high priest, you're finally just about to close this thing out. And like cockroaches, they just keep spreading. You can't seem to get your hands on them. But now we got them. Got them locked up. You go there in the morning, they're gone. These guys who you were going to take in and you were going to stone are gone. And now you're in this really awkward position because now you have to go and try to arrest them in public. And the people respect them. The people, if the truth be told, respect them a lot more than they respect you. We get this really interesting change. When the officers came, they didn't find them, so they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed and wondered what would come of it. And then someone told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, because they were afraid of being stoned by the people. They thought that they had power, and they were going to go stone these men, and now they're afraid of being stoned. You've got, you got to hear the relish in Luke's voice. Right? This is the, the same the same author who wrote the Gospel of Luke who talks about how the, the rich will be brought low, the powerful will be brought low, and the, the poor and the, and the downcast will be elevated, and now the poor and the downcast have been elevated. These men who have no training, these men who have no position, are now in the driver's seat dictating the way that things are going to happen. And so, they have to go. The, the, the Sanhedrin has been totally thwarted. They're, they've been totally upended in their desire to talk to these guys. They have to go and say, hey, uh, would you guys mind, you know, coming into custody so we could, uh, you know, talk to you guys about this a little bit, maybe? And the apostles are like, sure. For you, high priest, anything. We'll come on in here. We'll talk to you. The disciples, the apostles willingly enter into the Sanhedrin. See, the Sanhedrin's tried to squash them, and now they must face its own powerlessness. The great have been humbled, and the meek have been exalted. And brothers and sisters, it's important for us to realize that 
this process hasn't ended. Sometimes it feels like we're powerless. Amen? Sometimes, sometimes it feels like we don't have any of the cards. We're not holding any of the cards in the culture that we live in. It doesn't matter what culture-creating entity there is. We don't have control over it. Like, we, we, don't, we don't control Hollywood. Like, you can see a movie, and they, if they have a Christian at all in the movie, we're going to be the butt of the joke. Right? We are reliably the butt of the joke. We are reliably the villain and the bad guy. You go to academia, you go to, go to college, they're going to mock our beliefs, and they're going to try to steal our youth. That's what they do. You go to the government, even the government, even the government that we currently have, even in the circumstances we're in now, the government works against us, slowly chipping away at what we have. City after city, passing ordinance after ordinance. I was in Houston when the mayor of the city began subpoenaing people's, uh, began subpoenaing pastors' sermons in an effort to intimidate us. This is real. And, and it's really... It's really scary sometimes when we sit here and we look at this and we're like, oh, we don't have any power. What are we going to do to realize that we are on the side with all the power? Right? The, the people that rage against God have no power that God has not given them. Do you realize that? I mean, do you really believe that? That, that the illusion of secular power is just that. It's an illusion. All they can take from me are things that I can't keep anyway. Right? They can take my life. They, they can take my money. They can take my home. And all of that in the space of eternity is a blink in the eye. There, there is nothing of any worth that they can take from me. And yet they think that they have all the power. And if we're honest, we think that they have all the power too. And yet these men who have seen the risen Christ, have, have encountered the risen Christ, who have cast out demons and who have healed people in the name of Jesus can come into the presence of these powerful men knowing where the real power lays and knowing that it doesn't lie with them. And so the apostles come into the Sanhedrin and they defy them a second time. Again, we have the same image, right? We read... And when they had brought them in, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, right? So it's the same image that we had a couple of weeks ago. The Sanhedrin are, the, <clears throat> are composed of the Sadducees, the, the elite, the people that run the temple. Uh, they're composed of the, the elders, the people that are the, the rich and the powerful in the community. They're, they're the teachers, so the, the Pharisees, the scribes, the people that are teaching the law. All of these men come into a room, and they make a ring, this big mob around these 12 men standing in the middle of them shouting questions at them from every angle. But this time, the questioning is going to be started by the most powerful man in the Jewish world. They're going to be questioned. The high priest begins, the man who is there to speak to God for the people, the man who daily intercedes or believes that he intercedes with God for the people, this is the guy who's going to question him. And he begins to ask them questions. He begins to say, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. 
Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Right? What's he saying? He's saying, we told you not to do this, and you blatantly flouted it. Not only that, but now you're accusing us of this man's blood. Now you are accusing us. You are wanting us to take the blame for killing Jesus. That's because they kind of did. So he he didn't have a problem killing Jesus. He just didn't want the consequences of killing Jesus. That's how we are, right? We, We don't mind sinning. We just don't want the consequences for the sin. He didn't want the consequences of killing Jesus because, you see, the people were beginning to clamor against the Jewish leadership. And he sees his power slipping away. And so they accuse these men. These, the, these men have been brought before him. He accuses them. And, and Peter and the, and the other apostles, they begin to speak. And they don't beg for mercy. And, and they, don't, they don't plead for clemency. They don't try to deny the things that have happened. They go straight at the jugular. See, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to those things. And so is the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, we, as we begin to look at the sermons of, of Peter, as the book of Acts goes along, they get shorter and shorter and shorter. It's because he doesn't need to re-say things that he's already said. These these men know exactly where Peter's coming from. They know exactly what Peter believes. Sometimes we think, well, if we talk about it longer with a non-believer, then then they'll come around. Like, if we can use better words. No, no, we we won't agree because we don't agree. These men are not going to agree with Peter. They hate Peter because they hate Jesus, and and Peter serves Jesus. Right? But what is he going to do? He's going to get out there... He's going to respond to all of their accusations with open acceptance. He denies their authority to be able to act. He says, you know, I'm not, I can either do what God says or what you do, and I'm going to do what God says. You have no authority here. Then he's going to go and say, you don't want me to preach in the name of Jesus? That's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to preach to you in the name of Jesus. I'm going to tell you who Jesus is, since you're confused about it. Finally, they're going to conclude by laying the guilt for the death of Jesus firmly at the feet of the people who desperately don't want any part of taking the blame for that. He says, you killed him. You hung him on a tree. It's your responsibility. Right? But always through this, there is the hope of grace. It's like, yes, you are not righteous. Yes, you have sinned. You have broken faith with God. But there is redemption, even in the name of this man who you hate. Peter doesn't want their death. He doesn't doesn't want their blood. He, He wants them to be rescued. He wants them to repent. See, the disciples respond to threats and intimidation with clear and unambiguous presentations of the gospel. They they respond to threats with the truth, regardless of the consequences. And I want to ask you today, really quickly, 
Where are you being called to tell the, tell the truth? See, each of us is. Right? Each of us is a witness. Each of us has been called by God to witness to the truth that he has placed in our lives. And if the statistics are true, most of us are not doing it. 80% of Baptists, not evangelicals, not mainline Protestants, 80% of Baptists will say that they have not shared their faith at least once in the last year. We have been called to be witnesses to the truth. And most of us aren't doing it. And we're not doing it because we're afraid of the consequences. I mean, let's just be honest. We're afraid of the consequences. If you share your faith with a person at work, you could lose your job. If, if you share your faith with your friend, you could lose your friend. If you share your faith with your family members, you're going to risk condemnation and breaking up the family. There are consequences for truth. And yet we have been called to speak truth regardless of the consequences. We've been called to share our faith regardless of the cost. So my question today is, who, who are you not sharing the truth with? Maybe it's, not, maybe it's not your faith. Maybe it's not an unbeliever. Maybe it's your brother who's in sin. See, we're less likely to confront a brother in sin than we are to share the gospel. We're less likely to go to our friend and say, brother, I disagree with what you're doing. You need to stop. God is calling us to speak truth regardless of the consequences. And oh, that we would have the courage to do that. Regardless of the circumstances, though, most people do not welcome uncomfortable truths and the Sanhedrin is no different. They respond to, these, man, to these, these men's courage predictably, right? When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Now, I want to point this out. This desire to kill them, this rage that they felt, is no idle threat. In a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about the story of Stephen, same group of guys, same anger, except at the end of that little conversation, they take him out and beat him to death with rocks. So this is a real thing. These men are really mad. And they are really capable of doing harm. And yet, God's sovereign over even the most stubborn group of people. And so he begins to work in this group of people that have rejected his son a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave an order that the men would be put outside. Now understand what this means. We have to understand a little bit about who we're talking about here. Gamaliel is a Pharisee. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't get along, but the Sadducees usually gave the Pharisees what they wanted because the Pharisees had the, had the goodwill of the people. 
The Pharisees were the, the righteous men, the people that were, that were working out among uh, the people, trying to get them to follow the law more closely because they believed that following the law closely would bring the Messiah. And so the people respect the Pharisees far more than they respect the Sadducees. And so when Gamaliel stands up and begins to talk, he has their ear. But Gamaliel himself is a very impressive man. He's the son um, or the grandson, we're not really sure exactly which, of the great Jewish teacher Halal, Hallel. Right? And so he, he has a tremendous amount of authority within the body. In fact, this is probably the height of his authority. One of the, one of the men wrote this when he died. They said, when, when Rabbi Gamaliel the elder died, the glory of the law ceased and the purity and the abstinence died with him. That's how they saw Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a big deal. Now, we probably, you probably remember his name because he was the teacher of Paul. So Paul, who we're going to begin to see in a little bit, is Gamaliel's teacher. Gamaliel's teacher is in the Sanhedrin. Paul may have even been there in this. Maybe he's in the back. Maybe he's writing stuff down. Maybe he's holding his bag, getting him coffee. We're not sure which. But we begin to see these people popping up over and over again. So Gamaliel calls and says, hey, you need to put them out of the room. And then he begins to speak to them in wisdom. He says, men of Israel, take care of what you are about to do to these men. For before these days, Thaddeus rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him, and he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of men, it will fail. But if it is God, of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. And you might even be found opposing God. So Gamaliel, the wisest, most respected man in the council, begins to speak wisdom. And we need to understand this. There is no indication that Gamaliel ever got saved. Okay, we, we have no indication that this was the beginning of his conversion experience. In fact, we know that his son and his grandson are going to be well-respected teachers in the Jewish nation. He is going to be an incredibly important person in the Jewish nation moving forward. So this is not a man who is saved. This is a man who God is speaking wisdom through as he is sovereign over this gathering. Right? Because just as we've talked about over and over and over again, what men mean for evil, God can turn for good. Right? God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God is working all of these things together for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And the Sanhedrin, even as they rage against the apostles, begin to calm down. They begin to realize that they can't just kill these men, that they need to release them. The disciples, though, suffer for their defiance, and their response to that suffering sets the stage for everything that's going to happen afterwards. See, when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, right? So, no, the, the, the Sanhedrin isn't going to kill the apostles. They're going to let the apostles go, but they're going to give them a beating on their way out. And the beating that they received is what was called the 39 lashes. And we know that Paul received this. We know that this was kind of a standard punishment at the time for people, especially people that were defiant to the council. What they would do 
is they would take you, they would take your shirt off, they'd strip you down to, your, to, to, to no shirt, and then they would beat you with uh, a three-corded whip. And they'd give you two lashes on your back and one lash on your front. And, and you'd get 39 of those because Deuteronomy called for 40 and they wanted to make sure that they didn't go overboard. Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you this, guys. When I was in college, I was stupid, okay? I've, I've told you this before. I was stupid in college. And uh, I participated in a, in a ceremony where we hit each other with axe handles. I took one lick, and it was like the worst thing that I've ever been through. I cannot imagine what 39 strokes with a cat and nine tail would be like. We, we do know that it is enough to kill a person. That people routinely died from this. Being literally beaten to death and being killed by shock. And yet, what's the response from the disciples? What's the response to this cruel punishment? Then they left the presence of the council, covered in their own blood. Beaten nearly to unconsciousness, they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being beaten in public and leaving rejoicing? Oh Lord, thank you for the opportunity to be beaten in your name. What kind of faith does that? What, what kind of devotion does that to men who six weeks earlier had run away at the very thought of being associated with Christ? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowers these men to speak truth to power, to take a beating and to continue praising. And what's the result? Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. These men have had no impact from the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin did literally everything that it could. And the movement just gets stronger and builds up speed. See, the persecution for, was for real, but the apostles bore the anger of the council with joy and perseverance. Public and personal evangelism went on consistently because the plans of man could not stop the purposes of God. And I want you to hear me. As we enter into a world, as we continue, we leave this place, we go into a world that is hostile to us. There is no plan formed against us that can prevail against the will of God. There is nothing out there in all creation that can come between us and the love of God. The apostles were able to face down the anger and the jealousy of the ruling Sanhedrin because they knew that God was sovereign over every human power. There was no weapon forged that could hurt them. When they came to be beaten, they took it like men and they stood up and joyfully praised God. Nothing can destroy a church that has its eyes firmly planted on God. 
I want you to hear me there, guys. That's the takeaway. That's what we take away from this. When we look at this, when we see the early church, Christians, nothing can stop us from achieving God's mission if we keep our eyes firmly focused on the greatness of God. There is no power out there that can stop us. We face tremendous challenges as a church, guys. We know that. There's no... There's no doubt that as a small C church, like as the church in general, and as an individual church, as, a, as this individual church, we face incredibly daunting challenges. We have a gospel that no one wants in a community that is changing. We, we, have, a, we have an old building is muggy in here because only one of the air conditioners is working back there. That's why I'm sweating. Right? We, we, we deal with crisis and we deal with division and we deal with, with all kinds of deep pain and hurt in the church. And yet, despite all of these things, despite challenges that would sink any normal human institution, the power of God continues to lift this place up from step to step and victory to victory and we begin to see God working in this place as lives begin to change, as the spirit begins to move in the hearts of our children and in our youth and in our adults. We begin to see, we have seen God moving in this place because there is no Hurdle that we cannot overcome if we keep our eyes firmly fixed on Christ. All of our challenges pale in comparison to the unconquerable greatness of God. And so our challenge, guys, is not what's out there. Our challenge isn't the angry world. Our challenge isn't hostile politics. Our challenge isn't angry atheists. Our challenge is within us. We are the greatest threat to our success as a church because we determine where we're going to look. We determine what we're going to follow. Are we going to follow our own hearts? Idle factories, deceitful and broken from our mother's womb, are we going to follow Christ? We get to decide where we're going to keep our eyes. And so the fight that we are fighting is not a fight against everything outside of the church. It is a fight against ourselves as we wrestle every single day to put ourselves back up on the cross and crucify our lives to God. To pick up our cross every single day and carry it. To crucify our pride and our anger, our self-righteousness, our lust and our greed, right? The devices of the, the delights of the eyes, the devices of the hearts, the pride of life. All of these things are what lead us away from God. So I would ask you, brothers and sisters, today as we prepare to leave this place, what is keeping your eyes off God? What is separating you from the love of Christ right now? What 
is distracting you from the mission that God has given you. Is a conflict with your brother? Make peace with him. Is it uncertainty in your life? Cast your cares on Jesus. What is it? Whatever it is, God is big enough to be able to take it. He is strong enough to bear it. And he is powerful enough to destroy it. If we will keep our eyes on God, if we will trust in his sovereignty, then there is no hurdle that we cannot overcome. Gamaliel knew it. The disciples know it. And until we know it, we will not be able to move to the next level. Some of you in the room here today, keeping your eyes on Christ is not your problem because you don't know Christ. Some of you, it's, it's not about walking more closely with Jesus. It's walking with Jesus at all. There are some of you in the room here today who are living your lives as enemies of this most powerful God. If you're honest with yourself, you know it. You know that you're not right with him. You, you go and, and talk to somebody and say, oh, you know, brother, I, I, I just I want a closer relationship with God. I, I just I feel like maybe I, I need to be more spiritual. I'll go buy me some crystals, and then, you know, I'll sit over here on this mountain, and I'll meditate, or I'll, I'll, you know, I'll find God at the bottom of this bottle. It doesn't matter. The only way to have a relationship with God is with a relationship with God's Son. Nobody comes to the Father unless they come to the Son, and nobody comes to the Son except those that the Father calls. And if you are here, and if you have this desire to know God, it is because the Lord is calling you. He is drawing you to himself, and I would beg you right now with tears in my eyes, guys, submit to that. Give in to that. Don't, don't let this moment pass. Don't, don't, don't wait for it to be a little bit clearer next time or, or, or uh, a little bit more salient. You are hearing the truth of the gospel proclaimed to you now, and it is not a coincidence. You have a divine appointment with God today. You get to choose. You're either going to take it up or you're going to leave it there. In a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. If you want to make a commitment to follow Christ, I would invite you to come forward. We have deacons up front who will pray with you and will help you to understand how that relationship can be yours. If you do not have a church home and a church family and you're looking for a place to join, I'd ask you to come forward. We can set up a time. We can talk with you about what that looks like. Maybe you're just living your life. You know Jesus. You're a member of a church, but the world has broken you. There's hurdles all around you. Come forward as a church so that we can pray over you that you would have release. Whatever the reason is today, I would ask you to come. And lay it all down. Please stand with me so we can go to the Lord in prayer.
Thanks for listening to this sermon, part of the teaching ministry at Oak Ridge Baptist Church. If you'd like more information about Oak Ridge, you can go to www.orbcnet.com.